Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And I'm Ariana Prail. We're your co-hosts today on Forum through 11 a.m. You've been listening to NPR special coverage of the one-year anniversary of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Joining us to talk about today's events are KQED political correspondent Marisa Lagos. Welcome, Marisa. Hey, good morning. So first things first, what did we just hear? What was this event in Congress politically or otherwise? I mean, we mostly heard from Democrats, right? Um, We heard, uh, I think, first to start the morning, very somber speeches from both both the vice president and the president um, talking about, you know, the events of January 6th and really laying out in very stark terms how they see it as a as a direct challenge to our democratic system. Um, you know, Biden spoke for, I think, over 30 minutes, did not mention the former president by name, but mentioned former President Trump, uh, re- repeatedly invoked him, calling him the former president. Um, and he really framed what happened a year ago as sort of the the center of this challenge to our democratic system and he vowed uh, to not let it go forward and then of course in congress we saw moments of silence to commemorate the folks that died seven people uh last year in that insurrection um and of course i think a lot of talk a little a lot of honoring of the capitol police and other security uh, members who you know helped push back the insurrection and do we know what they what democrats intend to do with sort of this moment rolling forward like you know President Biden, Speaker Pelosi, are they trying to push a legislative agenda on the back of this moment or was this more about just recognizing what happened a year ago? I mean, certainly that's what Republicans say. They, they, they you know, we saw um, the majority leader, Mitch McConnell, say that, you know, he was not going to participate because he felt like this was being used for political purposes. I mean, it is politics, right? And so I don't know that you can separate them. I think that um, Biden and Harris and, and, and Pelosi and others are hoping to use this moment, um, this sort of collective remembrance to... W- how they would see strength in our democratic system. We're talking about uh, the two pieces of legislation, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and H.R. 1, which, you know, are aimed at kind of ensuring um, the integrity of elections at the state system. And we've also seen some movement this week around the possibility of taking up um, legislation that would kind of tweak the congressional approval of a presidential election, which, of course, was at the crux of last year's insurrection, trying to, to stop that congressional approval. So I do think that, you know, Democrats are in this weird position um, with all of this, where I, I think they want to talk about other policy areas, right? They want to talk about their broader agenda, but they also don't want people to forget what happened, especially considering that it appears not only that Donald Trump will likely run again in 2024, but he 
you know, remains as the center of the Republican Party and he wields an enormous amount of power. And I think that there is this uh, balance. And and today certainly gave Democrats an opportunity to kind of, um, you know, shed some of the concern of that they don't want to talk about this too much. It is an anniversary. It is an opportunity. And and I think they feel like that's really important to continue reminding people what happened and and just how serious it was. Ariana Prail here. Um, Marisa, I want to ask you also, because we heard about, we heard from President Biden and Vice President Harris earlier. Um, we'll play a cut actually in a moment. But first, I do want to let our listeners know that we want to be hearing from you um, for the rest of this hour and into our 10 o'clock hour. What are your memories of that day and how does our nation heal and bridge its many divides? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your comments to forum at kqed.org. So we have a bit of the Vice President Harris speech. Let's play a cut of that. And then, Maurice, I'd love to hear your reaction after. The fragility of democracy is this, that if we are not vigilant, if we do not defend it, democracy simply will not stand. It will falter and fail. The violent assault that took place here, the very fact of how close we came to an election overturned. That reflects the fragility of democracy. So Marisa Lagos, what did you make of the tone that Vice President Harris and President Biden um, struck this morning with their speeches? I mean, the tone is actually very similar to what we've been hearing, particularly from the vice president, because she was uh, sort of empowered by Biden to take on this voting rights agenda. But of course, we haven't seen actual policy movement in the House or the Senate or really the Senate. The House actually has passed a bunch of these bills. Um, So I wasn't surprised. I think that, you know, Harris and Biden both were very somber. Um, They were marking the seriousness of this. I think some of what they were saying was both towards, you know, with an eye towards what's happening in this moment in this year, but also with with an eye towards history, right? I mean, to really underscore um, the nature of this. And and I think that, you know, her remarks were very short. Um, I think, you know, she was the opening act for the president, right? So it was not out of line with anything I've heard her say before. It was very much in concert with the message that she's been sending um, and that we continue to hear this administration and, quite frankly, Democrats writ large send. Yeah. Marisa Alexis Madrigal here. As we heard earlier on NPR, one of the analysis, uh, uh, one bit of analysis that came out of this was that Speaker Pelosi was trying to say that democracy did in fact hold, that democracy did in fact win out that day. Does that seem to be the mood uh, among most Democrats that you're talking to, that democracy did in fact win out on January 6th? Yeah, I mean, I think that that there's a sense that there is a very fragile holding of democracy, right? And that this, I think the the concern you hear both among the base, among, you know, regular people who are sort of watching this unfold. And then also when I talk to members of Congress, people like, you know, Congressman Adam Schiff, who helped try both impeachments against the president, is that they worry for what's next. And we have seen, you know, over the last year, a real effort at the local level to you know, get folks into positions of power in elections offices and others that might make a different decision come 2024 if we have a similar dispute. So I think that there's a real concern for the future, and that's really what they're trying to drive home to a lot of Americans. You're listening to Forum Special Coverage. I'm Alexis Madrigal, joined by co-host Ariana Prail. Stay tuned. 
for more after the break. Welcome back to Forum Special Coverage. I'm Alexis Madrigal, joined by co-host Ariana Prail. We're also joined by Marisa Lagos, KQED political correspondent and host of Political Breakdown. Marisa, uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland's been under fire from the left for lack of progress on holding the perpetrators of the January 6th attack on the Capitol responsible. He tried to address some of those issues yesterday. Uh, Did he go far enough in doing so? You know... (laughs) I think that he is in a in a tough position as the president is right. Um, It's always hard to know when we're looking at police investigations, law enforcement investigations, because there's so much information that someone like the attorney general has that we don't have. Um, But certainly, I think that what he said yesterday is not going to silence his critics. Um, I mean, it's important to note, I think there's what? some 700 people have been charged and 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 it's an interesting mix of responsibility because certainly you have people you know the so-called ringleaders who are um who he's being pressured to really go after but you know there's also been hundreds of quote-unquote normal people who showed up for all kinds of reasons and who through a lot of academic studies and journalistic investigations show that these are not like necessarily radicalized people who came there as you know white supremacists and oath keepers many of them were very quote-unquote like for lack of a better word sort of normal americans prior to that um and i and i would you know bet that I think in law enforcement, they'd say, where you're still building a case. I think given all the sort of threats to democracy we just unraveled, I think that it's um, not surprising that people are critical and a year later looking for kind of heads to roll at the top of the heap, so to speak. And Marisa, Ariana Prail here. Uh, turning a little bit to California, many, including Republican strategist Mike Madrid, predicted that the GOP's role in January 6th would worsen its already bleak fortunes in California. Um, Madrid said a year ago, we still talk about Benedict, Ar- Benedict Arnold 150 years later. We-, we will be talking about Donald Trump for the next 150 years. How has that played out in your eyes? I mean, I think California, for all of our sort of reputation as this blue bastion, is really, uh, you know, a microcosm, not really micro, 40 million people, but of the rest of the nation. I mean, we have a Republican Party that, as we saw in last year's recall election, um, did rally around a very Trump-like candidate, Larry Elder. You see a base, just like you do nationally, um, not necessarily all Republicans, but who support the former president. And I think that... um, Madrid's right in California that has really hurt the GOP. It's it's not the reason that their registration numbers are where they are that predated Donald Trump. Um, but a lot of the rhetoric that I think started leading to uh, the contraction of the Republican Party here that began in the 90s echoes a lot of the things that Donald Trump sort of rose on, right? Anti-immigration rhetoric, sort of nativism. And so um, I think the question becomes then, is this something that then the rest of the nation follows suit, that you see that this is is really a sort of poison pill, not just the insurrection, but the big lie and, and Trump himself? Um, or is California kind of an outlier? And, and I don't think we know the answer to that question yet. Well, let's go to a caller. Tim in San Francisco, you're on. Um, one of the things that I heard, one of the things that I heard this morning is how are we how are we going to heal? Uh, from this. And we are not. I, I work construction and uh, m- <laughs> the majority of my coworkers are Trump supporters. And I want to tell you what they are being told by their right wing websites 
that I hope are being monitored, and I don't think that they are, is Donald Trump is president. He is going to be placed back into the presidency where he belongs. The Supreme, they, they believe they have a separate Supreme Court that the Supreme Court has ruled differently than the election. This is not over. We are at the beginning of this. So just because the insurrection failed does not mean that it will not fail in the that it will fail in the future. So be be very aware that this is still happening. And, and just because Donald Trump is in an office and we're not hearing him, that this isn't being perpetuated over uh, 4chan and whatever the websites are. So. If I am getting this from my coworkers, I don't understand how the government uh, and, you know, people uh, like yourselves are not hearing this also. And, and I don't have any special um, powers of any kind. I'm yeah, Tim, that was, was going to be my me. question for you. I mean, I think the, one of the reasons that people's minds have gone to healing is because if not healing, then what? Like, what, what, is, what, what is the appropriate response to this kind of political violence? I mean, I think that's what makes this so hard. What do you, what do you think, Tim? It's for our government to step in, to start monitoring these websites, to start shutting them down, to start, um, you, you know, we have no regulations on these websites. Uh, we have, it, from my perspective, um, it's broadcasting. So, like like television and like radio, you cannot lie or you're not supposed to lie. I mean, the president lied all the time. So we need to start calling lies lies. And we also need to start monitoring these websites. And when lies come up, they are broadcasting. It's just a different type. And we're not ready for this because we're not we're not ready for the 21st century and, and how it was laid out by, you know, by the dot-com companies. So hey, thanks for we that. need Tim. more we're gonna... regulation on websites to, to get – to get by this so that yeah. people aren't being lied to about the vaccines, about our government. So I, I've said a lot and I will stop. No, there thank you, listen. Tim. I appreciate your, your comments. And I think your fire is something that a lot of people out there uh, are feeling this morning. And we are going to be talking both with Rokana, uh, Congressman, as well as uh, with a bunch of people about these problems of misinformation. So uh, thank you very much. And another one of those voices joining us is joining us now is James Taylor, professor of political science at the University of San Francisco. James Taylor, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. So, James, on January 6th, you were quoted last year, you were quoted as saying the conduct of citizens in D.C. is about white rage, white rioting, white refusal to accept democracy in America because democracy substantively means justice. How are you feeling about justice today? Yeah, I woke up this morning and, and Ted Goldberg, who works with you all at KQED, sent me that email to remind me of, of what I said last year. I had forgotten. And I've been crying all morning ever since I've read the email I sent. Mm -hmm. Because I said, it, actually, I'll read it as, brief, as briefly as I can. It says, it's stunning. The storming of the Bastille, but for chaos without revolution. Meaning there is no plan, no idea, just confusion, coupled with treason. This is a mere blip in the protracted racial chasm and decline that is inevitable. It is a nation in decline. It is the internal dynamic of a global power in decline, like Rome, England, and the Ottoman Empire. But the conduct of citizens in DC is about white rage, the part you just read. I'll skip past that and, and get to this part. It says that um, uh, it's the revolution from above by the state, which is fascism. Trump is opposed to those who reject fascism. Biden and Schumer and Pelosi will talk 
but nothing will come out of it. They too are part of the serious problems we face. Trump burned the Capitol on his way out the door. The long-term impacts are inestimable. So as you reread your words there, um, just kind of back to that original question, yeah, how are you, you, and you mentioned kind of being moved to tears today, how else are you feeling about, or just what are the thoughts that are wearing on your mind um, yeah, uh, with this anniversary? No, thank you. All I can think about is the word love. I don't know what else we have. America doesn't have much else. We've stopped being creative outside of technology. We've like a, we've kind of lost our imagination as dreamers, believing that America is still the greatest country in the world, a country that is innovative and on a cutting edge. Yes, we are technologically still, right, in Silicon Valley. But spiritually, something has happened to this country. And this country is hurting. And we don't need smart people. We need good people. We need people who love America. And when I say love, I don't mean in some patriotic flag waving way. I mean in a sense of our common humanity. When I was driving on the freeway today, I looked at all of the different people driving and thinking about all of their different issues and concerns that everybody has. And so many of us are hurting right now. And what America and what California and what the Bay Area, what Oakland, what the Bay Area needs is love. And I know that might sound emotional and, and soft, but I think it's the highest ideal that we humans have available to us. I don't know if we have anything higher than love that, that we can call on right now. Lolita, listener, writes in to say, I remember feeling a sense of dread that day because the information I heard on NPR made it clear that Trump and his supporters were planning something big. When it actually happened, though, I was very shocked that something like that can happen after thwarting BLM protests, Black Lives Matter protests, just months before. How could they overprepare for people of color protesting for human rights while treating white terrorists with kid gloves? It makes it so clear how different people of color are treated compared to white people. Chief Taylor, I wanted to ask you about the racial components of this attack on January 6th. It's something that you've been very clear on. That there, and I think a lot of the research that we heard about from Marisa Lagos earlier, it's, it's the racial resentment is in fact fueling um, this this movement on the hard right. How do we address that racial grievance? Well, I think we have to go back to the last time we were at a precipice, uh, crossroads moment like this, and that was right after the slavery moment. We were in Reconstruction. America tried 12 years of racial democracy called Reconstruction, and then it thwarted it and gave way to Jim Crow. I think we are here now. I think independent of Obama's policies and Obama the person, the idea of a black president begot us MAGA. And the question is, which America are we? Are we the country that elected the black president? Or are we MAGA? Or are we both? And if we're, if we're either or or both, the future of America is again at the crossroads. We stand in looking into the next 75 years of the 21st century and we look left and we can see racial reconstruction. A, a great possibility for this country. This country still has great potential if it will acknowledge its, its unique sort of mix of people. But the alternative road is more Jim Crow. See, America in the 1870s had a choice to look into the 20, into the 1900s. And America first said Reconstruction. Then it said, nope, Jim Crow. We're here now. The question is, are we going to in the direction that of uh, the multi-everything, the multi-America, 
embodied in the election of the first black president, that, that rainbow coalition that brought that about, all of the young people, the elders, the immigrants, the, you know, the browning of America, or are we the reaction to it? And that means we might end up with another 75 years of racial segregation. And most Americans, and, and I, I don't want to be offensive, but I think most American whites don't think that, they, that this idea that Jim Crow or segregation can come back. But we've seen more than 400 attempts by elected officials in this country to undermine voting. So we are at the crossroads. And the question is, America, are you going in a direction that the black presidency represented symbolically, or are you going in the direction of MAGA? Because it's either or. And, uh, and the question is, which way will we go? We're talking about the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. I'm Mariana Prail joining Alexis Madrigal. That was James Taylor, professor of political science at the University of San Francisco. We also have Marisa Lagos with us, KQED political correspondent and host of Political Breakdown. And you are listeners. Let's go to another call. Siamak in Redwood City, you're on. Hello, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to say that I, please do not both fight the issue of voting rights. In the, just, just a couple of minutes ago, someone said that, oh, the Democrats are, um, you know, doing federal overreach and the Republicans want to secure the ballot. That's simply not true. The Freedom to Vote Act, this legislation that the Democrats are putting forward, is the only thing that stands that can possibly rescue this democracy and prevent the overreach of Republicans in voter suppression, uh, which um, by, by, by reducing the access to the ballot, especially for people of color, making sure that in the regions where minorities and people of color live, they have no access to the ballot. That's how they stay in their minority rule. The, the Freedom to Vote Act is the only thing that can possibly rescue this democracy. So please don't both side it. Don't badmouth it. Don't illustrate it as a oh, they want this, but they want that. No, the Freedom to Vote Act is essential. It's the most important piece of legislation that has to pass this country now if we want to have a democracy in, in, in three years again. Thank you. Thank you for that comment. Marisa Lagos, do you have a reaction to Siamak's comment? I'm, I'm actually, I'm not sure what he was referring to. I mean, I, I wasn't, if it was my comment, I wasn't. No, 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 there was some it. NPR analysis earlier. Oh, Marisa, I see, that was I talking see. about that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that a lot of a lot of especially uh, Democratic voters agree with that, that this is kind of the hill to die on. Right. And I think that this is appears to be the kind of next fight we're going to see in D.C. Um, because it seems that for now, the president has kind of laid aside his build back better uh, economic and social agenda. Um, but we like I said earlier, we are seeing some sort of movement around this conversation around voting rights. I think, you know, I think that some people listening today to the president would have pushed back and said, then why are you protecting the filibuster? Like, you know, that this that there's a sense among folks on the left that they're um, is a disconnect between that sort of rhetoric, the strong rhetoric we heard today, and the actions of this White House and some senators who seem, you know, in their minds, sort of more intent on protecting the Senate as a system than on actually making sure that these laws and policies pass. Um, but, you know, I'll say this, Alexis Mariani, it's a long road between now and even November. I think that we we don't know what's going to happen. I'm thinking back a year ago or two years ago, it's been an extraordinary time in our policy politics and so much could change in the coming months um, that, you know, the question becomes, I think, is there a way to sort of safeguard local elections? Because a lot of the changes we've seen happen are, are happening at the local level, whether it be law and policy changes or actually uh, turnover of elected officials. 
want to get to some more of your memories of that day, January 6th, which is sort of why we're, we're deep in this moment right now. One listener writes, I remember my husband was on a COVID ward rotation working as a physician. I was by then working from home, and I was astonished. I just thought, I need to take the day to go grocery shopping quickly because there's going to be mass chaos if the coup holds. As a daughter of immigrants, married to a son of immigrants, we have heard stories of coups in our parents' former home countries. It felt so surreal, and I just felt complete despair that this is where we're headed post-Trump. But listening to the committee hearings, the news coverage of it, the sentencing of those who stormed the Capitol, it's all restored my faith that a functioning system is possible and healing from the authoritarian Trump presidency is in our future. James Taylor, has, have these committee hearings, which are putting this into the historical record, and these charges, have they restored any of your faith in our dem- democratic functioning? I would say no, uh, to be real honest with you. My, my faith in democracy is in the people. I believe that democracy is the everyday people of America. Nowhere in any document that we have is the word democracy mentioned. It's not in the Constitution. It's implied in the Declaration of Independence. But I believe democracy is the people, the music, the religion, the jazz, the blues, the walking, the singing, the love. Um, and, and so I think that's what restores my faith, if I have any, is going to be in the people. These hearings are necessary for a documented record so that posterity can know 50 to 75 years from now what happened uh, in 2016, 2020, 2022, 2024. In other words, our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren need a record of what is happening now. If we are going to go to an apartheid America that puts people back in the backseat of the bus again, we need a record of it. Or if we're going to break through and have racial democracy going forward, where America has realized and actualized its best self, we need a record of that too. So these hearings are important for the future so we can understand with all of the facts, the role of the president of the United States seething and overseeing the overthrow of Congress. We've never seen anything like what happened on January 6th, short of 9-11, uh, or back in the 1812 uh, war. Um, so this is unprecedented, but my faith is in the people. Yeah. We've been talking about the anniversary of the January 6th insurrection with James Taylor, professor of political science at University of San Francisco, and Marisa Lagos, KQED political correspondent. Stay tuned for another hour of remembrance and analysis of January 6th ahead. I'm Alexis Madrigal. And I'm Ariana Prail. Stay with us. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.